Well, a couple of things for you before we dig into a passage tonight. Again, I want to remind you if you're here and you uh, are used to and normally can, and it would be appropriate for you to bring in uh, maybe some of your younger children, I'm going to ask again tonight uh, if we have anybody that's under 13, 14 years old that they would leave at this point in time and go to their respective classrooms, uh, either junior high or high school, as tonight's message will absolutely be PG-13, maybe verging towards R occasionally. And again, I remind you, the Bible is at times uh, quite explicit, and we need to discuss those passages because part of the problem is Uh, the church gets its advice on marriage and sexuality from the world a lot of times instead of from the pulpit. And so is the church should get its instruction solely from the Word of God with regard to all things pertaining to life and godliness. And this is certainly one of those areas. Uh, We will be discussing uh, these next eight verses or so uh, in a way that I pray we'll be down to the level to where no one would be uh, stumbled, but at the same time that the truth of them uh, is made very, very clear. As we saw last time, we have been made by God in the image of God. He made us male and female with all of our associated sexual parts, with everything that we are sexually. And then he says to us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that we are to only use our sexuality within the confines of marriage. And so he also addresses, now the apostle does, the issue of singleness, which is an appropriate way for us to walk in this world and is the only way that you walk in this world prior to marriage. So there are an awful lot of godly, wonderful, Christ-honoring, celibate, single people in this world, or there should be. But inside of marriage, we're reaching a passage tonight where God makes it very clear that if you're married, you're supposed to be sexual. And in fact, if you're not, you've got an issue. You actually have a problem in your marriage. And so we're going to look at a passage that is often abused, rarely taught on in the way that I believe it should be, Uh, but we're going to try and do it some justice tonight as we dig in at verse 3 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Would you pray with me? Father, pray that you give me the perfect balance tonight of speaking the truth in love and power, with passion and integrity, with kindness, gentleness, meekness, and self-control, that there'd be no overemphasization of the things that need to be said, but God, that you would speak to your people in this all-important issue in our day and time, so abused is the issue of sexuality. And we pray tonight that in our marriages, God, that we as husbands and we as wives would take these commands as directly from you 
And so, Lord, we offer up our lives that you would speak into them. In Jesus' name, amen. Verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, tells us about marriage. He tells us that in marriage, we have been created by God, and that we are to have our own wives and our own husbands, and we are not to burn with the passion of lust. And so we're adding to that now in verse 3, here in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because it is extremely accurate in the modern rendering and how most of you would likely speak of these issues if you were talking amongst yourselves uh, within your family or maybe even as husband and wife. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. And I want you to look at a couple of key words there. Husband and wife. It doesn't say boyfriend or girlfriend. It doesn't say fiancé. It doesn't say wannabe husband or wife. It doesn't say committed others. It says one husband, one wife in the confines of marriage are to fulfill their spouse's sexual needs. Notice it does not say wants, doesn't say every single desire that they might be able to concoct. It's very clear what the Bible is saying here. That as a child of God, created in the image of God, as a man and as a woman in the confines of marriage, that there are very specific needs sexually that each one of us has. And the reason that this is so important is if you pull the context out, which is marriage, then it becomes an aberration of what God is saying. You see, it really puts in the forefront the issue of marriage, doesn't it? That marriage is a sacred institution designed by God, and one of the purposes of it is the fulfillment of, of the sexual needs that he has given each of us in the way that we've been created. And without it, we are staggering around in this world trying to take care of those needs in some other fashion and all of them according to God. Not according to Pastor Jeff. Read the word for itself. According to what Scripture says, any other way is not God's way. So, Continue with me. Verse 4. The wife gives. If your Bible is a New King James, a King James, or some other translation, it may have a little different view of this, but this is actually the correct rendering to English. Because our bodies designed by God were given to us as a gift to our spouse. Did you know that? Your body was designed by God to be given to your spouse in the confines of marriage as a beautiful gift. The wife gives. Not something to be taken, by the way, and we'll get to this in a moment. Gives. 
authority over her body to her husband. This verse is probably one of the most abused in the entire New Testament. Because the uber-legalists, the misogynists amongst us, go, see, it's mine. And the flip side of that is, people who don't believe in the authority of Scripture go, I can't even believe that verse is in there, so I'm not going to listen to it. Be really careful. And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. You see it? Notice the context. One man, one woman, for life, confines of marriage, no place else, and your sexuality is a gift that you have been given by God to give to your spouse. It is not a reward for good behavior. It is not punishment for bad behavior. It is not something that you use as you please. You have been in marriage handed a gift that is a one-of-a-kind gift. Any of you like one-of-a-kind gifts? I like one-of-a-kind gifts. I like very special things that maybe my, my kids have made, things that no one else can get. I just got a I just got a baseball. My dear friend Jeff Torman gave me a baseball. He went down and saw David Wells. For those of you who love baseball, David Wells is one of the three Yankees that have thrown no hitters. I have a signed baseball in my office that has all three of the autographs of all three of the baseball pitchers on the Yankees that have that have thrown no hitters, all on one ball. There are not a whole lot of those floating around, and no, you can't have it. If you're a Yankee fan, if I see in my office, I'm Mr. Light's going to come visit you. Oh, it's a special gift. It's something nobody else has. And I want you to understand this in the context of our passage. What you have sexually is a beautiful gift that God has given you, has marked it specifically with you. And for those of you that love these things, you are the only you on this planet Earth. Amen? Body, mind, and spirit. There is not another like you. So in marriage, the two of you that have become one, there is no other person who has the gift that you have to give to your husband who is also unique or your wife who is also unique. Do you see the beauty of all of this? Start putting these pieces together within the confines of marriage. No one else has the gift that you have. No one else is the gift you are. And no one else controls the gift but you. Because a gift has to be given. A gift that is taken is called thievery. Amen? So notice the context. You're a gift a unique gift, a one-of-a-kind gift that God has placed on this earth to be given away to somebody else. That somebody else is your spouse. They were foreknown before time even began, and God made you to be that gift for them. Do you see the sanctity of that in the way that God has made us? 
And you see why human sexuality is so absolutely misunderstood in our world? Because our world says, I want it, I'm going to take it. That instantaneously defiles the purpose of human sexuality as far as God is concerned. The moment it becomes a weapon, the moment it becomes a reward, the moment it becomes a bargaining chip, the moment it becomes something that you can give someone to get something else, a tool of manipulation, the moment it becomes something other than a free will offering of uniqueness and beauty, it is absolutely losing its purpose. And it becomes unfulfilling. And while I'm not asking for a show of hands, probably most of you could testify to either people that you know or you yourself having been involved in a relationship where out of this context you can say yes and amen that it's not good. And in fact, it hurts a lot. Because it's marriage that protects it. It's marriage that makes it beautiful. So, verse 5 do not deprive each other of sexual relations. Now remember, this is the Bible. This is not, you know, some manual that we got from a college campus someplace. This is the Bible. Do not deprive one another of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Notice it doesn't say because you're mad. Because dinner was burned. Because you didn't get the car you were hoping for. You see? And a reason, again, that this is so important. Maybe tonight, you, you in your marriage relationship, or maybe you looking forward to marriage, because there's a lot of you in here that I'm guessing are not only not yet married, but you're looking forward to marriage, and maybe you're wondering what it is that this whole sex thing is about. You see, if you go into your marriage relationship as a believer with the world's view of sexuality, you are going to destroy your marriage before it ever starts. Because the world's view of sexuality is this human sexual relationship is something that you take from someone else. And that person then becomes an object of your selfishness. Can I tell you something about your selfishness? There's no end to it. There's no end to you. You were born on this earth with a little bit of Adam, a little bit of flesh, a little bit of carnality, and that carnality rears its ugly head probably nowhere else more than in sexual selfishness. Desire. And if not put into the confines of marriage, maybe one of the most destructive forces on the face of the earth. How many times do you read a news article and the core of the murder is an adulterous relationship. The core of the shooting is a girlfriend that left a boyfriend. The reason they robbed the bank was to make sure that they could buy a new ride for their hot new thing. 
You understand what I'm saying? You see, we, we have to not look at this like it's some kind of benign subject matter that we can just kind of avoid except when it comes up in the bedroom. If you do, you do so at your own peril. Don't. Unless you're going on a prayer retreat. Now, I don't know how many prayer retreats you guys do at your house, but I'm pretty sure that's not all day, every day. I'm pretty sure that's not once a week, once a month, for most of you. So be really, really, really careful about how you use your sexuality with regard to your partner, to your spouse. Afterwards, you should come together again, notice this, so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You are putting your spouse in harm's way if you do this. Now notice what I did not say, and neither does the Bible say it, that you will be responsible for someone's sin, but you will be responsible for putting them in the direct line of fire of the enemy. Because that temptation becomes greater and greater and greater. Remember where we started. Your spouse has needs. And if those needs are not met by the gift that you give them, those needs will likely become a real problem. And then those needs may be sought out to be taken care of some other place where they should not be. because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. But I wish that everyone were single just as I am. You see, Paul's singleness at this point becomes a blessing because he's been called by God to be single, and so these issues are not issues that he struggles with. But you better make sure that you've been called to singleness before you say that you're single like Paul was. You see, single like Paul was means that it's not an issue. Not that it is an issue, but for prideful, selfish reasons, you're just saying, well, I'm going to be celibate. Because that also doesn't work. The single person who's not been given the gift of singleness by God ends up in harm's way as well. They're directly in the line of fire for a different reason. Because they weren't called to singleness. They were called to be married. And so notice what is said. But God gives to some the gift of marriage and to others the gift of singleness. Now, again, would you please note it doesn't say 94.7% to marriage. It doesn't give percentage. It doesn't say some as in 50-50. It's not numeric. Is a very general statement. There are some people, you might even say a large percentage of people, who have not been given the gift of singleness, but given the gift of marriage. And likewise, there are some people, probably not a whole lot, who've been given the gift of singleness instead of the gift of marriage, is another way to look at this passage. But I want you to notice something. Both are gifts. Both are not your self-will. 
Do you hear what I'm saying? Both are not a choice that you make. Both are a gift. You have either been given the gift of singleness or you've been given the gift of marriage. Anywhere in between is probably you're looking towards marriage or you're going to be single, but you haven't quite figured that out yet. There's no in between. Notice it doesn't say, except for those of you who get to fornicate for the rest of your life. Except for those of you that are going to jump from bed to bed. Except for those of you that don't honor marriage and are just going to change spouses whenever you feel like it. And I'm being extremely descriptive here for a reason, because a vast majority of our nation feels that there's some place in the middle that you can be. That you can use your sexuality. In fact, the cry of the uber-feminist movement is, my body is mine. Amen? Oh, no, it's not. It actually belongs to God. And he gave it to somebody else if you're married. So your body's actually not yours as far as God's concerned sexually. Your body, if you're married, belongs to your spouse. Very plain in this teaching. Male or female, it's not yours. It actually belongs to your spouse. And here's how they're supposed to receive that. It's supposed to be a gift. You think we have this backwards in our world? You wonder why the world is so messed up in its sexuality? You wonder why currently almost 50%, and I'll dig into some of this next week when we cover divorce, almost 60% of all babies born in the United States are born to a single parent. a huge problem, family, and it's going to touch you. It may touch you and your kids, may touch you and your brother or your sister, may even touch your parents, might even touch your grandparents. But if we ignore this passage, we're ignoring one of the greatest problems that we face in our country, and that is the indiscriminate use of human sexuality as a form of recreation outside of marriage. And so he says, so I say to those who aren't married and to widows. That's very clear from the context because he uses a different term when talking about people who were never married, that the aren't married are people who have been divorced. In this context, to those of you that have been married previously but are not married right now, that would be anybody who's divorced or anybody who's a widow or a widower to those. It's better to stay unmarried just as I am. In other words, you've already had the one person that God designed for you to spend your days with, and for whatever reason... That person is no longer in your life. And Paul's not making a command. He's making a, a very godly suggestion right here. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. In other words, if you're single by divorce, 
if you're single but you're not sure you're supposed to be single, then the answer to your sexuality is not you play with it, it's you get married. It's not, well, I don't really want to be married because I like my freedom, but I also want to have sex with somebody. And you can give this CD to your kids, okay? So you don't have to tell them these things. You see, your Bible doesn't support any type of sexual activity outside of marriage, including if you've been married previously and your sexuality has been awakened. So you have two choices, singleness or get married again. Why? It's better to marry than to burn with lust. And so here's this very strong passage that Paul addresses, I believe, so explicitly and clear an issue which we face virtually every day in our society. I would say in the general vicinity of 80 to 90% of all of my marital counseling situations, I will have some component, piece, or part of this very subject. Either a husband or a wife who is not giving the gift to their husband or their wife, or they're using it as a weapon, or they're using it as a reward, some form of manipulation, or there's been damage done because the sexual union has been broken, taken outside of marriage, and unrepented of. But God has designed sexual love to be within the confines of marriage, this incredibly beautiful thing. And while we're not going to look at it tonight, I want to just tell you, if if you can read the Song of Solomon as a, as a married couple and not go, wow, I can't wait till we get home, honey. Uh, there, you might want to check and see if you got a pulse. It's explicit. And it's explicit for a reason. It was so explicit that if you were in the first century church in a Hebrew family and you were a, a male, you were not allowed to even read it until after your bar mitzvah. So God's not against sex. God's very much for it. And so in the context of the Song of Solomon, you see this beautiful eight chapters of passionate lovemaking. No holds barred. And so don't think that God's a prude. Don't think that God doesn't like it. You see, we've adopted some almost Victorian understanding and squeamishness about the subject and here's what's happened because pulpits won't teach it people get taught this stuff in the back of a car by somebody who wants to take advantage of them people get taught this stuff by the public school system and to them it's biology and chemistry nothing else it's supposed to come from us And we need to take this seriously because our kids are in harm's way for this. So when you're telling them, yeah, don't worry, we used to do that too, you might as well be telling them, hey, go shoot yourself. Because they're playing with a loaded gun. 
There are some important considerations here. First and foremost, notice Paul doesn't say as a husband or as a wife, either one. And I will tell you that in the very long time that I've been doing marriage counseling, and in fact, I've written the guide that we use as a marriage counseling guide here in this church. In all of that time, it used to be nearly exclusively that this was a male issue. But I can tell you in the last 10 years, that has turned the corner, and it's probably approaching 50-50. And I believe that it's very, very, very disturbing because it's the very thing that the prophet Isaiah said would happen in the very last days. But he doesn't say, demand your sexual rights. Take it, it's yours. He says, your body's a gift. It belongs to your spouse. Give it freely. You can't demand it. You you, you can't. Men, there is likely not very many, if any, more destructive things that you can do in your marriage than to demand sex. Most women view that as akin to rape. It's true also for your ladies. So be careful. That's not how it's supposed to work. We, we absolutely have a right to expect, if you will, anticipate. Even ask for kindly. But go so far as to demand is to take a gift and trash it. So be careful here. This is how this has been misapplied and misinterpreted for centuries. Honey, I've had men come into my office and point to this. See right here? You're not doing what you're supposed to do. And I go, turn over a couple of pages. See right here, 1 Corinthians 13? You're not doing what you're supposed to do. And I turn to Ephesians 5. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. You've got to be careful about doing the you're not doing what you're supposed to do thing with a pastor. Just saying. You see, in the context of this, we have to remember these things. You're this beautiful gift. Your body was a beautiful gift to be given away. Don't turn it into something else. This may shock you. Sex is not about self. Sex is not about self. And I want to be really careful here. This is not meant to beat anybody down. This is to say, look, I think a lot of our our brothers and sisters in this world, maybe some in this room, maybe you personally, need a tune-up. Maybe we collectively need a tune-up. That because our sexuality was given to us by God, designed by God, it's meant to be pleasurable and wonderful, and it's a gift to be given away, that automatically puts it into the category, it's not about you. Never wondered why Jesus said so emphatically, 
unless you give your life away, you'll never find it. Unless you're willing to give this away, you'll never find satisfaction. Unless you are willing to let it go and say, look, in grace, because here's the deal. If you approach this selfishly, self-satisfactorily, self-centered, if you put you first and your spouse last, then you are not going to get out of your physical relationship, which you're supposed to, because it's not just sexual. It's psychological. It's emotional. It's a bonding experience. You see, it's far more than just you being gratified. That's why it's the gift. You see, what is designed by God to be is this incredible picture of grace in our lives. Because guess what? I can't earn grace, right? You see how this, as crazy as it sounds, your sexuality in marriage actually pictures the grace of God. It is a gift that has to be given to you. You cannot take the grace of God. And you cannot take sexuality from someone. It must be a gift in marriage given to you. So in that sense, it's this beautiful picture of how God works graciously in our life, even to provide salvation. It's supposed to be that kind of love. It's not selfish love. It's very selfless love. That's why I turn those few pages and go to the 13th chapter here of this amazing book, and I say, Love does not seek its own. You see how it works? So within the confines of marriage, I'm always supposed to be looking out after my bride and she after me because there's no other way for that to happen. You see, it's supposed to be this incredible divine reciprocity. You see, if your goal is to meet your own needs sexually, if you're going to put you first, if everything becomes about you, you're going to lose everything you're trying to gain. Or you might have a sexual experience, but there won't be the closeness, there won't be the bonding, there won't be the emotional tie, there won't be the love that goes along with it that's supposed to be there, and therefore it will become bad. It will become dutiful. It will become work. It will become all the things it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be Someone practicing the exchange of things to the benefit, the mutual benefit of both. That's what reciprocity means. It can be used in the negative sense or the positive sense. It's I give and someone else is blessed, and they give and I'm blessed. We're blessed together by trying to outgive each other, is the way to understand it. So the very best marriage, mentally, emotionally, physically, is two people trying to outgive one another. You want a great marriage, that's how to do it. Don't try and take what you want or take what you think you need. Try and outgive your spouse in every way 
imaginable, including sexually. Now, what that looks like for individuals, I get questions all the time. So I'm going to tell you, we're going to get some weird ones for Ask Pastor Jeff. There's no question about it. (laughs) What that looks like for individuals, that's where I think people fail because Scripture is completely silent on what that means to you as a couple. Why? Because you're individuals. What is good for one may not be good for another. What is good for those two may not be good for this two. And so God leaves the details out of it. That's why if you're here and you're married, go read the Song of Solomon together and figure it out. Get a little instruction there, the rest will work it all out by itself. Guaranteed. You see, it's that process of devoting yourself fully to the pleasure of someone else. That's where your needs get met. That's how it happens. You see, the power for your spouse to experience the most exquisite and ultimate pleasure that human beings can know on the face of this earth lies with you and only you. Lies with no one else. Nor can they take care of it themselves. Lies with you. You see the importance of the gift. They're stuck without you. They're on a dead-end road without you. They can go nowhere without you. That's why it's supposed to be this beautiful gift that's given. Frequently and often, as you both desire. So you look at it as a divinely wrapped gift and say, here I am. Anything else is a, is a momentary mechanical function of biology. That's what it becomes. And while I don't encourage you to go trolling the internet for stories such as this, I I have read within the confines of some of the books that I will, and studies that I'll mention next week, account after account after account after account of women who was abused, went into the pornography industry. And not only is there no satisfaction in it, many of them become lesbians because it is not satisfying anymore. And yet, the world says, wow, that must be amazing. You are a gift. A divine reciprocal gift to be given to your spouse. And so Paul, in light of that, points out a danger to us. And it's the danger of unresponsiveness to this command that you and only you are the way that your spouse is supposed to be fulfilled sexually. I hear this well. If you're here and you're married tonight, if you're looking forward to marriage, this is so unbelievably important. That's why it says you cannot deprive the other person. Because that divine unresponsiveness is going to be interpreted by your spouse 
as a lack of love and a lack of care, a lack of concern, and it leaves them sexually frustrated to the point that now their minds are going places they shouldn't go. And while their sin will be their sin, you are not responsible for their sin. You have driven them down to the porn shop and put them through the front door saying, I'm not doing it. Do you understand what I'm saying? The danger of unresponsiveness. If you're married, you have a responsibility to your spouse because you are the only one on this earth that can satisfy them sexually. Now, maybe that seems like a burden to some. It's not supposed to. It's supposed to be, I have a gift that only I can give. And here's why. Because very often, sexuality is used as a weapon. It's used as a reward. As long as I get what I want, then you're going to be able to get what you want. not how God planned it. And so to repeatedly refuse your spouse sexually or use it in either one of those two major ways is setting your marriage up for a disaster. And so Paul puts his finger right on that problem. He says, don't do it. It's dangerous. He moves on, and frankly, I'm glad he's moving on. Probably some of you are too. (laughs) But if I do this once right, then we can just hand out the CDs, right? The DVDs. So you want to know about it? Go watch this. Notice what he says, picking up in verse 6. I I say this by by way of concession and not command. I wish that all were as I myself am, But each has his own gift, one of one kind, one of another kind. The Revised Standard Version kind of puts it in a generic tone that there is sanctified singleness. Basically, Paul's saying marriage is not for everybody. Maybe most. And there is sanctified singleness. You know, I I just love when Scripture brings forth a, you know, a subject matter like this. And there are people that you can look back in your life. And probably most of you know the story of Catherine Marshall when she and her husband went to India uh, to spread the gospel there. Her husband was taken way too soon. Dr. Marshall died. And she for years just attempted because she was quite young when he passed away. And, and she, she fought the, this battle of sanctified singleness. And she begged God and asked God, God, give me the gift of singleness. And the Lord protected her in that time. But as she wrote in her biography, she said, the roughest time I had while I was in India was not the threat of death. It was missing my husband. I remember the times that we would be in our embrace. 
I remember what he smelled like and what he felt like. It was tough. And so Paul's admonition here is if you're going to burn with lust, not like some Texas preacher, you're going to burn. No, it says burn with lust. It, It means that your hormones are off the charts. If that's you, then God's likely not called you to singleness. That's the Lord going, hello, this is me. I gave you that. We just need to figure out who it is that's supposed to receive that gift that you're going to give them. So Paul says marriage isn't for everybody, but it is for most. And so he gives a word to those who are previously married and to those who are widows. Do you think that God understands that in marriage that your desires, your sexuality have been awakened? Of course he does. So you think that the Lord put you on this earth to just make you miserable? Of course he did not. So he's going to give you one of the two gifts, and they're fairly easy to determine which one. Either the gift of sanctified singleness, or you probably ought to think about getting married again. It's fine. It's okay. If you're going to constantly be dealing with sexuality. And I'm not talking about resisting temptation. Talking about things that lead to sin. So make sure that God's called you to singleness. And if He has, praise the Lord. What a gift. That's why Paul says, I wish that people were as I am. Because the thing that Paul could do, he was not worrying about his wife and his family when he was imprisoned. When he was beaten half to death, if it killed him, so what? He died serving the Lord Jesus. You see, he didn't have the same worries. I worry about those things because I have a wonderful bride, my best friend on the whole face of the earth, the one person that completes me. I am concerned for her every single day. So I have concerns that keep me in a certain lane. And I'll never be out of those lanes. I'm not going to say, well, honey, you know, you know, I know we're married, but I'm going off to Africa. God called me to be a missionary. Hope you make it. <laughs> you can't do that kind of stuff. I have respond. I have children. My children look to me to be their dad. Even though they're bigger than me and stronger than me, I'm still dad. I have responsibilities that God's called me to. He's blessed me with. Joyously able to do those things. I wouldn't have it any other way, but he's not called me to singleness. He's called me to be a great husband, a task at which I am not perfect, a task at which I'm still learning after nearly 42 years of marriage. I'm still going, wow, that was really stupid, Jeff. I can't believe you did that. Well, he says to those who are previously married, Better to be married than to have passion control your life is the best way to look at it. Sexual passion. God understands where you're at. And if you're struggling, and he'll go on a little later in this book to 
describe those that he calls virgins, which are those that haven't been married in their situation. And I know there are many who are here who are divorced. And can I say to you, there's hope for you too. Divorce is a tough thing. It's very hard, but God's grace is sufficient even for the divorced person. God knows what you're going through. God knows that you're struggling. God has a plan to to help. He is our very present help in a time of trouble. Amen? Don't think for a moment he's forgotten you. He has not. You may be going through a season that you don't understand, but God understands it. And and I want to put a little caveat in here. When you read the book of Titus, the Apostle Paul nearly commands young widows to get remarried. He stops just short of making it an actual command, but for all intents and purposes, he said, I don't know how you're going to make this work, so you, you probably should get married. So for younger widows, very often you have children. And I know it's tough because there's an emotional tie. I know it's difficult because you have love for your husband. And I know I know a number of widows who are genuinely widows. And, and for the most part, I, I sit and talk with them, and it's like, you know, they really have no desire to get remarried. And I quite honestly will hear things such as, I already had the best. I'm good. And then they go on lots of cruises. Because <laughs> they don't have a husband telling them, oh, we can't afford that. <laughs> See, there's a gift of singleness right there. You know, I'm trying to lighten it up a little bit. It, it's not all serious stuff. God understands those things. And he loves you deeply. And he knows where your pain is. He knows where your hurt and your sorrow is. Of course, those needs were previously met because of your relationship with your spouse. And now they're not. So be careful. Don't put yourself in harm's way. I talk especially to a lot of, a lot of younger widows who I think, because of the love for their, for their husband, think, well, just to honor him, I won't get married. But they've got six-year-old children, and they're struggling. Maybe they were primarily homemakers, and they're dependent on family to take care of the kids. And I'm not saying God can't work this way, but I'm not sure it's always God. Sometimes I think it's just emotion. God understands, and he's got grace for you. He loves you. Don't suffer needlessly. You pray and make sure God's spoken. But it's not a sin to get remarried. As long as God's called you to it. A couple of final thoughts, and then we'll pray. are just three simple things. Marital happiness, at least in the sense that we've been talking about it tonight sexually. There's three basic ingredients I think that we can look at. And one is a love for God and His Word. 
because He created you. He's defined how these things work. He's defined us. He's told us who we are, what we are, and how we function. He's told us how best, as Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, how to possess our own vessels in sanctification and holiness. How to take control of what God's given us as a gift and how to use it best. You you see, that comes from an understanding of who God is and what His Word says about who we are in Him. A second thing is a discipline of self. And this comes from James chapter 4. Submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee. You, you see, God's given us the tools to do this right. And he requires us to have some spiritual discipline from time to time. To do things his way. Because it's the best way. Sometimes it seems the hardest way, and sometimes it is. But he will never fail. And so if he asks you to be single for a while, it's for your good. If he puts that person who's supposed to be your life mate in front of you, it's good. If he allows you to be single at some future point in time, it's also good because we serve a good God. And he will give you the strength to overcome the things that could otherwise harm you. It's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now unto him who is able to keep them, to keep that which is committed to him. He's able. But you've got to give it to him. And finally, it's nothing more than a very simple thing. And that's mutual respect, mutual honor. That's the message of Ephesians 5. Submitting yourselves to God, again, Paul says. And husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved your church. And wives, honor your husbands. You see, that's mutual respect. That's not selfishness. That's mutual respect first to God and then supremely to each other. And if you do that, you're going to have an amazing marriage. If you're looking to be married, these are the principles you want in play. Before you say, I do, to anyone, make sure they have the right understanding of what marriage is. Ladies, don't give away Ladies, don't give away that gift. Men, don't try and take that gift. Leave it in God's hands and let Him bless all that you are physically, sexually, mentally, emotionally, so that you be that person that God's called you to be in the area of human sexuality. Would you stand and let's pray together. Bring some of the pastors up front. Maybe you need some additional prayer after service. Worship team's going to come out and they'll close us in a song. Well, let me pray for us as a people, as family. Father, thank you for the majesty of your word. And Lord, I want to pray very specifically because I'm absolutely certain 
that there are people right here in this congregation tonight that are struggling in this area. Lord, some of them are absolutely in rebellion to you, and they know who they are. Lord, they're not only not doing these things your way, they're doing these things the devil's way. And they're involved in relationships where they're not married. They're involved with people who aren't believers, and they're a believer. And they're playing games, really, with your word, Lord. And I want to pray for them that you give them the strength to say no and to step away from that sin, to resist the devil and watch him flee. And Father, for the ones who were in pain tonight, the ones that have come and they're hurting because they're divorced, or they're hurting because they're widowed or a widower, or they're hurting because they want to be married but haven't found that person that you've called them to. Lord, those that are suffering tonight, I want to pray very specifically, God, release a blessing upon them right now. Lord, give them extra strength to wait, extra patience to resist. Lord, while they're waiting, and would you bring into their life that perfect person that you designed before you ever created this earth. Lord, you knew them. You knew us. And Lord, you know their pain. You know their suffering. You know their sorrow. You know their hurt. You know their pain. That it's ongoing every day in some cases. So I ask that you would lift their heads. And Lord, for those of us who are trying to fight the good fight, we're walking the walk, we're talking the talk, we're doing all of it, and we're doing the best that we possibly can. And Lord, we have some weak spots in our marriages. Lord, would you shield us from the enemy? Would you take away any remnant selfishness that we may have? God, would you, because you love us, correct those things that are broken? Would you fix and restore the things that the moth has eaten and the rust has corroded in our lives? God, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Would we have in our marriages a joy like that first day when we gave our life to you and we couldn't wait to run around and tell somebody about it? Would that be how we feel about our spouses? Lord, so deeply in love, so passionately in love. Lord, that people could see there's something different about us than the world. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you for the gift of singleness. And we pray that you'd help each of us to walk as you have called us. In Jesus' name, amen.